0: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, February 4. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Anika Smethurst.
1: Good to be with you, Tom. And today we're gonna take a deep dive on QAnon. Trump has changed things forever. It's a lot of seeds that he planted and history is gonna be very kind to him and the people that fought on the right side
0: of the war. Yeah, so what's happening to this movement now that Trump, the hero, is out of office? And their main predictions haven't come true.
2: People can kind of dine at the buffet of misinformation uh, with their own little, you know, bits of it that they believe in.
0: Will the buffet continue? That's coming up on The Briefing in just a moment. First, here are the big stories of the day. A fresh blow for the Australian Open with
1: today's warm-up games called off.
0: A worker in the city's Grand Hyatt Hotel has tested positive to COVID, forcing hundreds of players and staff to isolate. About five, six hundred people that are either players and officials and others who are casual contacts, Uh, they will be isolating until they get a negative test.
1: That was Premier Daniel Andrews in a late night press conference. Statewide, masks are now mandatory indoors while gatherings at homes have been reduced to 15 people.
0: So essentially, this appears similar to the situation in Perth, Annika, where one hotel worker got COVID and in Perth, the whole city went into a five-day lockdown, but Dan Andrews hasn't gone as hard.
1: Yeah, it seems a little bit unlike him after (laughs) last year with Victorians facing months and months of lockdown. But look, there is really strict protocols around hotel quarantine here. So We know in Perth there was issues with them not even wearing PPE. Mm. Here they're tested every day. Often their family and, and close contacts also faced voluntary testing. There is really good contact tracing around the people that work in it, so they do hope to be able to get onto this quickly. They put up a list of eight locations this guy went to over the weekend. They think they might be able to jump ahead of it and fingers crossed because I was one of the, now living in Victoria, one of those anxious people last night when that 10.30 press conference was called waiting to hear what we were going to face.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it was triggering for a lot of Victorians. Um, The Victorian Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, was out trying to reassure people as well.
2: It's one case, we've identified it relatively early. We've got exposure information coming in very rapidly and I think people will absolutely step up to this in terms of uh, knowing that they need to get tested.
1: Yeah, Victorians are pretty good at getting tested. Look, there's also an urgent investigation into how two return travellers at a different city hotel caught the UK strain of COVID despite never crossing paths with an infected family.
0: Yeah, there is better news in Perth though, uh, where that lockdown I mentioned is expected to end tomorrow. There's been no new cases since the first was detected on the weekend. There will be some restrictions still in place, but they're yet to be announced. And that bushfire in bad news for Perth is still burning out of control. It's on the northeastern edge of the city A total of 71 homes have been lost so far, but there's fears for for more of those homes in that part of Perth.
1: Yeah, an emergency bushfire warning is still in place for many suburbs, while a second air tanker has been deployed from New South Wales.
0: And we're finding out more about how the Tokyo Olympics will work.
1: Yeah, Tom, the International Olympic Committee has released the first part of its so-called playbook, a guide on how to pull off this massive event in a pandemic.
0: Yeah, the playbook says that athletes should be clapped but not cheered or shouted at to avoid spreading the virus through the air. It also outlined a typical journey for each stakeholder group um, with measures starting 14 days before arriving in Japan, testing before departure and upon arrival in the country. We
1: got a sense of how this will work for athletes on the briefing yesterday when we spoke to the CEO of the Australian Olympic Committee, Matt Carroll.
0: Japanese have a 10-minute test, so every, every uh, athlete in official arriving will be tested before they go to the village. If they test positive, uh, unfortunately if that was the case, uh, they go to a quarantine hotel, they don't go into the village. Yeah, I was really interested to hear Annika when we interviewed him yesterday that the system won't involve quarantine for people, you know, all those thousands, more than ten thousand people arriving in Japan.
1: Yeah, it seems to be a very Australian thing, the way we're managing our borders, but it does give a sense of normality that the Olympics are coming back. You know, they have operated throughout war times and different stages through the, you know, a very dramatic time. And I, I think it's a good thing for people to be able to get out and know that this is going to go ahead, even though it'll look very different, Tom. Scott Morrison has reigned in a Liberal MP who's been spooking medically unproven coronavirus treatments on social media.
0: Yeah, Craig Kelly, who went on Pete Evans' podcast on the weekend, also had a run in with Labor's Tanya Plibersek in the halls of parliament yesterday.
1: My mum lives in your electorate and I don't okay. want her exposed to people who well, okay. are not well, going well, listen, listen to be because of these crazy conspiracy theories well, that you're spreading. Well,
0: you're the one doing that because you are the one spreading this information. A great piece of theatre right in front of the cameras yesterday. Uh, hours later, Scott Morrison told Question Time he'd met with Craig Kelly to make his views very clear. The member views and I discussed these matters and I made it very clear that that was the view of me as Prime Minister and of course the views of the government
1: vaccination is critical. It must have worked because Kelly put out a statement saying he'll
0: support the government's vaccine rollout. Yeah, interesting in some of the papers um, in the commentary this morning around that, Annika, there's talk about the Prime Minister not protecting Craig Kelly in a pre-selection battle. Do you know much about that? Is he under pressure at all in his seat?
1: He certainly is. In fact, he was last time. The pre-selectors in his own seat actually don't like him very much, it (laughs) seems. And he has been rescued before by Prime Ministers, so... Given his recent outburst, you'd pretty much think the Prime Minister wouldn't be too keen to, I guess, support him and and save him should they come for him again, which means he won't be over to represent his Sydney electorate. Now, he has pulled his head in, so maybe he's had a think about it overnight, but this has been an ongoing issue for the Prime Minister.
0: So is there a good chance that in that meeting yesterday, Scott Morrison talked about the pre-selection Thing, and that's what kind of made Craig Kelly pull his head in?
1: I suspect so, but if he wasn't aware of that already, there might be something wrong with him. There's also a bit of talk about how this worked for Tanya Plibersek, too. There is a lot of leadership speculation within the Labor Party, and it certainly worked to her favour yesterday. <laughs>
0: And official interest rates are likely to remain at a record 0.1% until 2025. That's according to the Reserve Bank Governor. We're going to keep the monetary support going until people have jobs and firms have to pay higher wages to get the workers they need. I'm confident that that will eventually work, but we have to be patient.
1: An upbeat Philip Lowe said the economy has bounced back much faster than expected. In fact, we're expected to recover to pre-pandemic size by the middle of this year.
0: And also, quite interestingly, uh, Philip Lowe also called on the government to keep the job seeker supplement in place beyond March, saying going back to the old new start rate of $40 a day just isn't fair. So it's eight weeks until that supplement is set to go. It'll be really interesting to see if and when the government make an announcement on this.
1: And it looks like Israel Folau won't be returning to the NRL.
0: Yeah, lots changed in this space apparently. Um, yesterday reports were that the Dragons were considering signing him if he agreed to a gag order. But now St. George have released a statement saying, although it did make inquiries, discussions have ended. Surely they expected a backlash, Annika. This seems like a strange one. There might be more to the story. <laughs> yeah, perhaps something actually went wrong that we don't know about because
1: it does seem strange that you would make this decision without preempting where it would have gone yesterday.
0: Yeah. All right. In a moment, Q and on.
2: I just read somewhere that Biden just lowered the
1: age of consent to age eight. Has anybody heard anything about it's that? It's pretty packed, guys.
2: It looks great. It's looking good. Patriots are in the building. It's beautiful. Does he not realise President Trump called us to siege the place? You're
0: listening to audio recordings from a QAnon chat group. Now, QAnon is the internet conspiracy movement that's taken hold, especially among Trump supporters.
1: It all started in late 2017 as a fringe group that believed itself to be fighting a supposed elite left-wing Satan-worshipping pedophile ring. But over the past year or two, it has grown with followers seeming to thrive from alternate theories around the Black Lives Matter movement, or COVID, and of course, the US presidential election.
0: Yeah, when Trump lost, they then began to pin their hopes on January 20, inauguration day. They thought Trump would step in, take the presidency, and carry on his secret war against the pedophile ring. So now that that prophecy hasn't come true, and Biden's been successfully inaugurated, what's happened to QAnon? Is the movement over? That is our briefing topic today.
1: Stuart Thompson is a writer for the New York Times and he followed a QAnon audio chat group for three key weeks throughout January. The chat room recordings were part of a big feature story he wrote for the Times.
0: Stuart, thanks for joining us on the briefing. How would you describe what QAnon is?
2: Well, yeah, the QAnon story that I wrote is really started with the Stop the Steel movement, uh, looking into that group, and I was surprised to find a lot of overlap between that and the Q conspiracy, which is basically the belief that an individual with high security clearances uh, leaking information to the internet, claiming that there are, uh, you know, there's a cabal of uh, sex traffickers and pedophiles among other crimes, and he, he or she or they releases information to the internet in cryptic little messages, sort of like riddles that are solved by Q followers. So when I started looking into the Stop the Steel groups, I found this, uh, this interesting chat room where they were talking about the rally in Washington and other things and uh, discovered a lot of overlap with the conspiracy.
1: How big has this sort of movement become? We hear about it a lot, but is it just a core group of, I guess, rusted on supporters or is it spreading quite
2: fast? Yeah there's been some attempts maybe to estimate uh, how many people follow it there's probably a lot uh, i think for a lot of americans now they you know they think about it as not just strangers on the internet but their own family their own neighbors have mentioned it things like that so we're seeing more stories like that and i think this kind of group really shows that it's not just people who've gone off the deep end and online forums, but are real, you know, Americans who are chatting about a lot of things. They talk about, you know, Trump and rallies and the election and also babysitting their grandkids and having birthday parties. And then also all of the conspiracy stuff, you know, there's been estimates of like millions of people potentially believing in parts of it, but it's worth remembering too, the Q is a big umbrella. It's a vague kind of conspiracy. It's got a little bunch of different pieces and people can kind of dine at the buffet of misinformation uh, with their own little, you know, bits of it that they believe in.
0: What were Q's key predictions and how many of them had failed before we even got to January this year?
2: So key to the Q conspiracy is how vague a lot of it is. It's more like... Almost like little poems released online that can get interpreted. But there's also a lot of people who do the interpreting. So there are big voices, big, you know, sort of leaders in the movement. Uh, A lot of them had popular accounts on the website Parler that was shut down. And they offer interpretations. There's people who do really long videos that get watched a lot. But among the predictions, really, over the last couple of weeks that we've been following, have been that Trump was going to announce mass arrests and then that would be the justice they were seeking for the people committing all these crimes, mostly Democrats, but a lot of the so-called deep state that controls the U.S. government and that Trump was also going to release a lot of the evidence that would eventually back up what Q has been saying about all the crimes being committed. So what, when the January 6th rally was approaching they were anticipating all of this to go down and that was partly why he called everyone to Washington. Of course Trump didn't really do any of that. I was listening on the day of to the group and they were just kind of remarking, oh, this is you know, this is everything we've heard before. It's sort of like a campaign you know, stump speech about a stolen election and his accomplishments. So they were disappointed in that respect. But you know, the Q movement can sort of move down the road. So because it's a riddle and a mystery, anytime something doesn't come true, they can say, well, we just didn't interpret it correctly, or we misread the signs, or here's this other alternative point of view.
1: What do you think is the success of this? Why have we been able to convince people that are actually quite sceptical of the media and government they don't hold the same scepticism towards Q. They seem really on board with this. So what's the success of it?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's uh, the technology is a part of it. So I when I was uh, talking to some people about the cult overlap for Q, there definitely seems to be a lot of features that are culty about it. Something people said is that, you know, people aren't isolated in Q like they are with a cult. Like a cult will physically isolate people, cut them off from their families and friends. So that seems to be true for a lot of people, they're just sort of living their lives, but they are isolated in a sense by the communities they create through social media and social networks. And this chat room is a good example of that.
0: Let's zone in on January 20, the day of the inauguration. Here are some of the recordings you made from the chat room around that time. If anything go
1: down, it'll be today on inauguration day. If the insurrection that gets signed, it'll be today, tomorrow. Trump can call martial law even up to five minutes before Biden's inauguration
2: if he has to.
0: I think midnight, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening. So what exactly did they expect to happen on that day and how did they react when it didn't come true?
2: Yeah, they were expecting kind of more of what they were expecting on the 6th, that Trump would do something to change the outcome. So for them, a lot of it was uh, this idea that uh, he had signed this act called the Insurrection Act that would allow him to use the military to seize control. And there were clues that this was coming true. And there was a belief that Trump had already you know played all the chess pieces perfectly and it lined up the military to make some arrests and help trump remain in power and as the day rolled on uh, i was listening in and it's sort of again like moving the goalpost down the road but in a micro way so it was well trump's not going to give his speech or then he would give it but he would announce the arrest and then he didn't do that so we reported the plane. but then i was oh trump's going to go to texas instead of going to florida or go someplace where he's safe. So, you know, he could announce this takeover when he's in the air, him and his family would be safe and so on. So it was moving down the road and down the road. And then there was a belief that Biden would be arrested during the inauguration itself on television. You could hear the disappointment sort of as the day went on that none of this stuff is coming true. And a little bit of reckoning with whether they had been uh, lied to or misled.
1: How much do you think Trump or his campaign team actually played in? To this movement? Do you think it was part of their strategy to, I guess, you know, try and motivate this group of people? And was that there from the start or was it something that changed during his presidency?
2: They certainly didn't distance themselves from it. I think Trump was asked about it and he brought up Uh, protecting children, which is uh, sort of like a handy interpretation of what Q is about. They do have the the slogan, Save the Children, as part of this whole child sex trafficking ring that they believe exists. You know, we saw on the 6th, with the attempt to uh, vote against Biden's victory, uh, kind of an embrace of those beliefs in Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and other senators and representatives supporting that idea, that it sort of endorses some of the the mythos of the movement.
0: So where to for the movement from here? How disappointed were followers in the failure of their predictions on January 20? And which parts of this movement will live on and which parts will
2: fall away? It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I was tuning in on the 20th thinking, this is it. You know, we've really been waiting for this moment. It's sort of the last hurrah and a long list of last hurrahs and everything went exactly the way I thought it would go and not the way that they thought it would go. And there was a bit of a reckoning, a little, you know, some doubt, Mm. a big disappointment. People seemed sad, but It did take long for them to kind of reinterpret the events. So they kind of moved on to this idea that's now fairly popular, that Q might have been a psychological operation meant to keep Trump supporters complacent and just waiting for Trump to do something. And their idea was that it wasn't really up to Trump all along, it was really up to them to do something. So sort of swapping one conspiracy for another. I think the movement is very resilient because it's so flexible and it can be interpreted in different ways. And some of the underlying beliefs that you know elites control everything, I don't think are going to unravel just because this one version of it and Q didn't come true. I think, yeah, the Q conspiracy is definitely going to continue in some form or another. Is
1: this a bad joke gone wrong? <laughs> what do you think is the reason behind this? Who is Q? And Is it something that's just sort of got out of hand, I guess?
2: It does kind of seem that way. If you think (laughs) there's some theories about uh, who is behind it all, the administrators of various message boards, perhaps, and one of them posted a message after the election, basically saying like the, we made friends along the way, and this was kind of a fun ride, but uh, it's kind of over now,
0: Stuart. We really appreciate you um, giving your analysis of this movement and bringing some of the audio from the chat room that you monitored. Thank you so much for being here with us. Nice to be here. That was Stuart Thompson from the New York Times. Fascinating story, isn't it, Anika? And really interesting to see where it goes from here. You know, if in the Biden presidency the whole tone and context around this movement changes, and you know, without Trump at the center of it, and with Q seemingly you know, off the boil as well, can it really live on in its current form?
1: Yeah, we've spoken about this bit, the idea that Trump's gone, but what happens to Trumpism? There's still a movement there of people that, you know, feel like the world has left them behind. And in some ways, him leaving and what happened to him or the way he framed it as what happened to him, the election being stolen, might actually keep them going a little bit longer. So as you say, it'll be interesting to see whether the tone Changes it or whether it'll just manifest into something else.
0: Tomorrow on the briefing, we take a look at the GameStop story, uh, that massive clash between Reddit investors and Wall Street investors. We'll explain what short selling actually is and whether it's ethical or not. A podcast one
2: production.